you know, I just met this attorney the other day. That's fine. So, and so, so he here, is, yeah, so okay, I, I, I came and took my cell phones yesterday, and they came and took all my property out my, out my sale today. All my Mr. Williams, I'm the judge in the matter. Shut your mouth, and I'll tell you when you can talk. You got it? This is Eight or a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? Good to have you back. It's good to be back. I've returned from Aider and a Better paternity leave. The Aider Nation embraces paternity leave for all of its citizens. Yet a one-episode hiatus. On today's episode, Sajid and I are going to talk about a order from a judge to gag a person who was facing sentencing before the court, a person named Franklin Williams. Mr. Williams was disruptive in the court's view, interrupting the judge as the judge spoke after kind of a tense exchange. The judge ordered law enforcement to get red duct tape out and place it around uh, Mr. Williams' mouth. So we're going to be talking about what happened with the gag order. Uh, We're going to talk about what our reactions to it were. We're going to check my own instinct to just trash the decision and actually think constructively about ways that we can build relationships with our clients to prevent those sorts of escalations from happening insofar as that's possible and and just kind of process process what happened. Sajid, why don't you set the table for us? This judge in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court, which is in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, it's a judge named John Russo who was sentencing a man named Franklin Williams, who was a 32-year-old African-American man who had apparently gone through a trial before Judge Russo had been convicted by a jury of uh, various counts, including aggravated robbery, kidnapping, theft, and was uh, set to be sentenced in this court hearing. Mr. Williams, during the course of this hearing, is repeatedly trying to uh, be heard and interjecting comments and commentary to the court and the judge, as we've heard this, this on this episode, uh, telling him, in no uncertain terms to stop, to shut up, to zip it. And then ultimately the judge ordered the deputies in the courtroom to gag Mr. Williams with red duct tape. And so ultimately there's this really jarring image and video that has been circulating the internet of Mr. Williams sitting in court with red duct tape around his mouth. Before we get into it, why don't we just listen to a little bit more of the encounter between Judge John Russo and Franklin Williams. So at this point, I'm going to hear from your lawyers, and that means zip it. But you're not letting me tell that you means what's going on. zip it right now. You trying to? Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. No. Does the does the, does the comment quit talking? You understand that? Because you're trying to take my life. Judge, no. And you're not letting me tell you what's going on. Take your life fair. for what? What What do you mean? It's not fair. You're trying to take my life. What does that mean? And on the document, Again, I'm going to interrupt. Mr. Williams, listen. Not listen to me. If we have to, I will gag you in one second. So listen. You will get a chance to talk. I'm going to gag you in one second, so just listen to me. Here we go. I'm going to tape it, and then I'll unzip it when I want you to talk, because the young lady over here can't take down everything. 
you know how this worked. We've been in the courtroom hundreds, well, at least 50 times as we prepared for trial. I'll give him a chance to speak at sentence. Okay, take me off. Now I'd like you to speak. Mr. Williams, I want to make it real clear. If you spit on, attempt to bite, oh, or injure any of my deputies, you're going to have a bad day. Oh, oh you clear. Take on me, man. We We'll go back on the record. Mr. Williams will have a chance to speak. Uh, and I'll be honored and everything I'll say. Go ahead. You know, watching what happened, seeing a man with red duct tape around his mouth in a courtroom felt like a gut punch. I had a visceral reaction to seeing someone in a court, which I kind of ascribe all these important values to, being gagged in a courtroom. It, it's the sort of, it's so inconsistent with a person's dignity. Yeah, it's dehumanizing and it's degrading in, in, in a way that, like you said, is so jarring just takes your breath away the fact that he was an african-american man too it kind of reminds you or maybe tells you that we haven't come very far you have this white judge putting red duct tape around the mouth of a african-american man and silencing him as he's sitting in a jail uniform about to be sentenced to a double-digit prison term the encounter encapsulates so much of what we know this country to have been and i guess it reminds us maybe that this country is still uh, so uh, far from what we hope it should be or what we hope what we want it to be yeah you and i ascribe a lot of weight to the justice system or you know we know it's flawed and we work uh, within it to try to make it better but we at a certain point have some belief that it's not going to do physical violence to people in the courtroom right we know that it it produces awful outcomes and it's socially destructive and it has terrible racial uh, distributions and you know we know all of that but we kind of suspend that as we go into the courtroom to fight yeah. you know we, we we draw on it but we don't see violence being done to people and, and you use the word silence and i think that was the motivation literally but it was so deeply ineffective because mr williams is able to still speak right when he's had tape placed over his mouth that the takeaway for me is that's not what this is about yeah. Right. You know, when you think, okay, let's use different types of tools for somebody who's a disruptive person in a courtroom so that they might still understand what's happening to them or be present, but let's use tools to address the disruption yeah. that they present. So if a person is disruptive in the sense that they might be jumping up and down, there can be some sort of tool to prevent them from jumping up and down in the courtroom. It might be a deputy. It might be the type of chair they use. It might be the way the chair's pushed in. Mm -hmm. If the disruption is that this judge is feeling that the person who's the defendant is interrupting him, then there might be some sort of tool, you know, that might be geared towards preventing the interruptions. It might even be removing the person uh, from the courtroom, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah. But taping doesn't prevent him from talking. The taping wasn't about not hearing his voice. It was an escalation that, in my view... If it's not about silencing him, then it might be about something else. Yeah, it's about putting him in his place, keeping him in his place, reminding him of what his place is in that courtroom, degrading him, sub either implicitly or explicitly degrading him, belittling him. The word you use was violent. It's a violent act. We don't really associate 
putting duct tape around someone's mouth as a violent act. But I, I mean, I appreciate that you use that word. It's a violent act. It reduces Mr. Williams or reduces it reduced him to something, someone subhuman. This could have been so easily avoided. It could have been uh, handled so differently. And I think you just started to list some of those means or mechanisms that the judge could have used to handle this scenario differently. From what I gather, the judge could have uh, just stopped the proceedings and and his insistence that this go in a particular order and just let Mr. Williams speak. Because what I understood this hearing to be was a sentencing hearing after Mr. Williams had been convicted of these very uh, serious crimes. And he was looking at a range of a potential sentence. So the ultimate outcome of the hearing was not going to be impacted by what Mr. Williams said or didn't say. Taking him out of order, allowing him to say his piece, speak his mind, air his grievances, and then when that portion of the hearing ended, to then go ahead and issue his sentence, the judge's sentence, and kind of let it play out uh, naturally. A person comes, they seem to be really upset, maybe under a lot of stress. They're not listening to the judge telling them, stop talking. Right. The judge escalates, by the way, by telling him to shut up and telling him to zip it. But your point is, in that situation, if a person just says, okay, let's take a time out for a moment. Sir, what would you like to say? Yeah, to your point, it requires a recognition of our client's humanity. It requires a recognition of Mr. Williams' humanity and what he's going through in that moment and empathy for what he's enduring in these moments, regardless of what he's been convicted of, regardless of what he's done. I think he even said it to the judge, this is my life. Um, And it was his life. It is his life. He literally is sitting in court in a jail uniform, powerless, and is about to be sentenced to multiple decades in prison. So a judge who has the willingness and the ability to to take a moment to reflect and say, what is this man going through? What is this man that's sitting in front of me, interrupting me, wanting to talk? What is he going through? What is he experiencing? What belies what he is doing? And anyone who has just kind of common sense and kind of basic human empathy will understand that this man is going through a stressful moment, a a humongous crossroads in his existence. And so recognizing that, recognizing his humanity, okay, we don't have to insist on certain rules in this particular context. We're going to maybe take things out of order or maybe we'll do things differently than than we want to or that we're accustomed to just in recognition of this man's humanity. And I think that what the tape indicated and the judge's comments and his behavior are emblematic of that a lack of recognition of Mr. Williams' humanity, a lack of empathy. And as I think about it more, it's actually not that surprising when we think about how often judges and court actors belittle and dehumanize in sometimes subtle ways, but sometimes not so subtle ways, our clients in our courthouses every day. Because what, what comes to mind for me is when our clients are coming out of the holding cell on an arraignment calendar or on a big plea calendar and they're like herded into the courtroom and they're given these orders by the deputies you know move this way move that way don't sit here not there they're called by numbers as opposed to their names you know they're They're referred to as bodies you're right yeah they're called bodies you know i'm done with these bodies or i'm ready for the bodies they are stripped of their names they're stripped of their humanity 
And so when Judge Russo is speaking to Mr. Williams that way, when he is duct taping him, ultimately, it doesn't come in a vacuum. That is just merely a ultimate manifestation of what we see in terms of the dehumanization of our, of our clients and the criminally accused in our justice system every day. When the judge duct tapes him, for people who haven't seen it, he's ordering his bailiffs in the courtroom to place the duct tape. So he maintains his position at the bench, right. you know, kind of above, right. while he's ordering the person to be taped. And this person is saying, let's just get it over with. Just right. place the tape on me. Yeah, and Mr. Williams is just sitting there. His tone, by the way, through the course of this back and forth, he's not yelling. He's not threatening. He's not demonstrative with his hands. Even when the deputies are putting duct tape on him, he just kind of is resigning himself to his terrible fate that he's about to endure. He's not fighting back. He's not resisting. So when you talked earlier at the top about this being more than just trying to maintain some court decorum, it really does feel like this was a inflammatory above and beyond step that this judge took under circumstances that did not at all merit it. And that's to, that's to, to recognize that judges do have pretty wide legal latitude to control the decorum and the order of their courtroom. Yeah, so in uh, the state of Ohio, there's a set of rules of court. Uh, one of the rules is called Rule 43, and it talks about the defendant's right to be present at proceedings, but it has an exception for people who are disruptive. And it says, when a defendant's conduct in the courtroom is so disruptive that the hearing or trial cannot be reasonably conducted with the defendant's continued physical presence, the hearing or trial may proceed in the defense absence or by remote contemporaneous video, and judgment and sentence may be pronounced as if the defendant were present. Where the court determines that it may be essential to the preservation of the constitutional rights of the defendant, it may take such steps as are required for the communication of courtroom proceedings to the defendant. So there's a rule specifically in place in the state of Ohio there's some old reference in a case called Illinois versus Allen to gagging. You know, the judge is in charge and has to maintain order and is the decider about what happens in the courtroom. You know, they can't just say, deputy, you decide what happens. Like, it's right. the judge's responsibility to maintain the courtroom. But in the state of Ohio, there is a rule that says you're allowed to be present, but if you're so disruptive, then you can be removed, you can be placed in another room with a video conference. So then the judge can just talk to it and press the mute button. Yeah. There are rules in place. So this claim that I was doing something that precedent authorized is so detached from what the rules are in Ohio. They have a rule specifically about yeah. disruptive defendants at sentencing. Right. I don't think you have the rules to prevent judges from gagging people, but that would be a good consequence of having a rule specifically on point in place. To, you know, this wasn't about the rules. It wasn't about maintaining order. It was it was a, a, a decision from anger. You know, I'm not able to read the person's heart or get into his brain, but I'm listening to everything he says before the gagging. And he does, you know, say, in a second I'll gag you, in a second I'll gag you. And so they have that conversation, and maybe he felt like he was cornered, and he had to because he had made the threat. Yeah. But that's not, this isn't so judicial decision-making. Yeah. yeah. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about what the alternatives could have been, and you just described some of them, taking him out of the courtroom, 
putting him you know, on some sort of uh, video feed. But even simply, I don't even think that the judge took a recess. You know, just take a timeout and say, you know what, Mr. Williams, we're going to take a break. I'm going to allow you some time to consult with your attorney. Um, or even taking a recess and just going off the record. We've done this in, in our courthouses where we're sitting in the same context as, as if we're on the record, but we're off the record where we're sitting next to our clients, we're sitting with the judge, the DA is still present, so there's no ex parte communication. And the judge can even then, off the record, say to Mr. Williams, hey, you know, Mr. Williams, why don't you tell me what you're feeling right now? We're off the record and we can deal with this off the record. We can take a little recess to deal with what you're going through. And then when we're back on the record, here's, here's how things are going to go. Something like that. The judge could have just said, you know what, based on what appears to be Mr. Williams' concerns or his issues at this sentencing hearing, I'm going to continue this hearing to a later date so that Mr. Williams and his counsel can discuss and they can brief or litigate any issues that he uh, they deem appropriate and we can come back on a later date so that everyone can proceed with clear eyes and calm hearts. But to resort to what the judge resorted to seems so extreme and seems so unnecessary. One thing that I wanted to ask you about was in the clips that we saw, Avi, was the the defense attorney. And I don't know if he was a public defender, but from what I gathered from the video and from the encounter was that he kind of just stood there. Did you see anything in these videos beyond him just standing kind of idly as this all occurred? I assume that he's appointed counsel. At the beginning, there's a statement, I just met this guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know this guy. Right. And as a public defender, I've personally experienced the I don't know you statements. Yeah. So right. I am reluctant to say this guy should have done things differently. But as the whole exchange is happening, there's a person standing, for the most part, silently right. as the accused or the now convicted after trial and the judge are having an exchange that's not in the interests of uh, Mr. Williams. Right. That conversation that's happening is way off the rails from the beginning of the footage that's been viral. Yeah. Now, I have been surprised before as I'm standing in court and unexpected things happen. Sure. I have been caught off guard. I have wondered how I can de-escalate with a, a judge or a DA in order to protect my client. And I've made decisions, you know, based on what I think is the right move. And some of those decisions might have been proven right based on the outcome and some we don't know. Yeah. Right. So I see, I see a guy, I see things completely devolve. You know, as I'm watching the the footage that's uh, viral, and I ask myself, how do you call the timeout? Mm-hmm. How do you call the timeout when your client's telling you, "I don't know who you are. Yeah. This is my life." If that's the conversation before things are happening, it's okay to spend more time with the person. It's okay to put things over, right? You know, and ask, or at least ask that they be put over, so that you can have that conversation. When you say put over, a continued, or just delayed to a later date, right? Yeah, if you need to meet more, if you, yeah. if there, are or issues, even just for another hour. One of the statements that Mr. Williams made before he was gagged, like immediately before, was this is a violation of HIPAA. Mm. He was making a uh, like a legal claim about medical privacy. Yeah, we've had people say, "Well, what about you know this issue? What my about my Miranda that rights? Yeah, yeah, they didn't read my rights. What? Yeah, what about my Miranda rights? You know, yeah. and therefore, you know, even though the the offense is you know on video camera and in right. high definition, the Miranda issue is going to break the case open and. And that's a moment where us, you know, you can react by having a good conversation with the person and treating them with respect and explaining how the rules work. 
or you can be like this guy is just, just he's he's just not listening just kind of shush, shush him and scoff at him yep so i i think that when you have somebody talking about hipaa and how they don't know you it's time for the timeout and it's time to put your body in front of the guy not in terms of the tape but right stop mm-hmm. everything or do everything in your power to stop everything yeah because it's getting way out of control and that's I mean, who knows if that's going to lead to more severe sentencing. Right. When the judge is acting from anger, you know, yeah. the inference or the the, you know, the assumption would be that that's going to be worse for the individual. And so how do you de-escalate yeah. everything? You know, I, I thought about what this defense attorney could have done in the moment, but I also thought about what we can do in advance of those moments to ensure that our clients feel heard and that they feel represented they feel human. And so I, I, I recognize that these moments when our clients or when someone like Mr. Williams is being disruptive or is yelling out in court, it's often a manifestation of them not feeling heard, that they don't feel heard or represented by their respective defense attorney, that they don't feel that their defense attorneys either has their back, has their best interests at heart, or is being their voice to the court. And so they feel like that they have no other choice but to speak up on their own behalf. And so I was thinking to myself, like this encounter by with Mr. Williams and the judge, again, doesn't happen in a vacuum. I'm thinking back to our own practices. When we invest time into our relationships with our clients from the jump, from arraignment to sentencing, you know, when we invest time to have them come sit with us in our offices if they're out of custody, to meet with our interns, to meet with staff, you know, with meet with an investigator or a paralegal, or when they're in custody, when we take moments out of our lives to go visit with them and sit with them, not just when shit's about to hit the fan in court, just to talk to them, get to know who they are, what their family backgrounds are, what, what brings them to our caseload. When we invest that time, that obviously is an investment in our productivity for the case, but it's also an investment in our client's humanity so that they feel like they are heard, that they feel they're shepherded, they feel they're embraced and supported. When the moments of truth come, like at a sentencing hearing or at a trial, they feel confidence that we are going to be their voice box so that they don't have to stand up and yell out to the judge because they feel like, hey, you know, the guy that's been sitting with me at the jail six, seven, eight, a dozen times is here with me today. And I have full trust and confidence that he knows who I am. He knows what I want. He knows what I want the court to hear. And even if we disagree, he's talked to me about those disagreements. I have an understanding of why he's going to be saying what he's saying. In advance of these really critical hearings where our clients are going to be enduring very emotionally charged you know, crossroads of their lives, like being sentenced, or for example, a jury verdict being read, we have to sit with our clients and tell them, hey, this is what's about to happen. What are you feeling? You know, what can I do to support you? What can I do? What would you like me to relay to the court on your behalf? We have to sit with them in the in the jail cells or in the jail interview rooms or the holding cells. And it has to happen right before these these court appearances happen so that they, again, feel like they understand what's happening. They feel like they're being heard. They feel like their voices are being represented. It can't be in the moment. It can't be like whispering to the client in their ear, hey, I'll talk to you in a little while or I'll explain it to you later. It has to be something that we account for well in advance of these hearings and specifically in the moments before these hearings so that these issues are 
kind of resolved as best as we can, or at least understood before the lights go on. Yeah, information too, just about you're going to speak at this point. Right. You have a right to speak at your sentencing. Right. And we're going to make sure that you speak at the sentencing. And here's what I've written for your sentencing arguments. Yeah. You know, here's the things that I'm going to be saying. Getting the judge to try to explain when, the you know, the time when this person's going to speak. Yeah. And telling him, you be quiet now, you'll speak later. He's he's saying there will be a time for right. you to speak. You know, he's telling him that. Yeah. But the guy obviously doesn't, he's not receiving that and processing it in the moment. Yeah. Right? So there's sometimes a uh, feeling like, I need to know everything about my case. And, you know, all the legal issues. I need to have reviewed every single thing that's happened, you know, so that I can be informed as I talk to my client and spend time with that person. But really, the relationship building is a critical thing yeah. that can happen you know you can you can do that before you've plowed through all of the audio recordings right. or researched every trial issue yeah you can build a lot just by being there uh, for people like i think that there's a great opportunity with bail arguments mm-hmm. to start the client relationship really trying to understand where they're from it's not about the case it's you know it's not about the charge yeah this is about how we're going to make sure you come to court and not reoffend and l- let me know about your family so often, I know I do this and I've been guilty of this, is that we, you know, we're tired. We, you know, we see the little voicemail light blinking on our phone. We're thinking to ourselves, you know, fuck, I got to return these calls. And sometimes it's a client's parent or a sibling or a wife or a partner. You know, sometimes it's hard to muster up that energy to, to return that call and to sit through what they're experiencing or what they're venting through. Obviously, it's just a common courtesy uh, to return that call. But more than a common courtesy in terms of our client-centered practice, it's an investment in the relationship with the client. So when the client knows, this attorney returned my mom's call. Because mom is telling the client, I spoke to your lawyer the other day. Or mom is telling the client, I've called your lawyer three times and he hasn't called me back. Or you know, when we take a moment to step outside of the courthouse with a client's uh, sibling, after a court hearing to explain to them what just happened. That is an investment, obviously, in terms of the common courtesy of with in our interactions with fellow human beings, but it's also an investment in the relationship with the client. So then when, again, when these moments of truth happen, the client is then feeling like, hey, I know this person, they know me, they know my family, we're, we're on the same team, we're in this together, he's going to speak up uh, on my behalf as I need. The other thought is, I know I have empathy when we have to cover. As a public defender's office, there are going to be many moments in time when we have to go and cover for a fellow colleague. But even then, we can buttress those um, anxieties or those frustrations that our clients are going to endure. The assigned attorney can let the uh, client know, hey, on this particular date, I'm not going to be there. I'm still thinking of you. I still love you. I'm still with you, but I'm on vacation or I have a medical appointment or whatever it might be. Or I'm in trial. I'm in trial. I'm thinking about you and our office has your back. Um, One of my colleagues who I work with who is going to be there with you, he's going to be fully equipped to answer your questions. He's a qualified, competent lawyer. And then when that coverage attorney shows up, that they are not just, again, speaking to the client when they're on the record. They are taking a moment to go back into the holding cell and say, hey, you know, I spoke to your assigned attorney. He asked me to be here for you. We're part of the same team. I'm here to answer any questions you might have. You know, taking a moment just to, again, recognize this person's humanity, recognizing that what they're going through 
is really challenging and really difficult and really dark and that they need us to really hold their hand through it. And even if it's a coverage lawyer, because the opposite of that is what I see sometimes from public defenders is when you're covering a case, you're just meeting with the client for the first time in the courtroom as they're about to go on the record. And you're like quickly trying, not you, but we are quickly trying to tell them, well, I'm going to call this case. We're going to kick it to another date and um, your other attorney will be there for you. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, your honor, I'm ready to call line number four. And then the guy stands up and sometimes we're not even standing next to the client. You know, we're standing at counsel table there in the jury box or in the uh, audience and we're telling them stand up. And then we're saying, you know, Sajid Khan on behalf of Joe Smith. And we're not even standing next to Joe Smith. It's like the biggest pet peeve I have in my in my practice is when public defenders or defense attorneys don't stand next to their client. There's a thing that I talk about a lot. You have to hear me talk about this all the time yeah. is this trust deficit, mm-hmm. right? So our clients, because we they are qualified to have us represent them, it's because they don't have the money to hire their own attorney. Right. The fact that they don't have money for stuff has screwed them at every stage of their lives. It's never been a good fact that they mm. don't have money. Yeah. It's never been good for them for, you know, housing options or for employment opportunities or advancement or healthcare. It's always been bad. Yeah. And then there's this one place in the courthouse because of the right to an attorney, because you don't have money, you have an opportunity to have these people who are ready to fight for you and stand with you and do everything who are there for the right reasons, you know, even though they sometimes forget it or they're sometimes burdened yeah. or whatever we have this massive trust deficit because the thing that brings us into our relationship with our clients has been bad for them Mm -hmm. almost universally. Right. This is the one exception. And on top of that, they didn't choose you. And on top of that, in this world, you get what you pay for. Right. You know, and price is an indicator of quality. Right. So we have to do a lot to overcome that deficit. We start at kind of a, a few steps back when it comes to building these relationships. And if you have that deficit and on top of that, you're not going to look at a person or talk to them by their name or stand next to them. You're not going to do basic shit. Yeah. Right. Like stuff that is, there's no reason. Common courtesy. Yeah. If there's some physical issue, you know, like mobility or something, I'm not talking about that. No. But if you're not going to do the basic stuff, then you are not developing the relationship. And when we have the opportunities, you were talking about, meeting the family members you know some people might listen to us talk and say you know i'm putting my clients on calendar and they don't show up i'm preparing the trial and they miss the trial date or they cut off their ankle monitor Mm -hmm. right or they you know which is what was present in this case a trial followed by some sort of absconding yeah each time our clients don't show up and we get to put them back on calendar that's a chance for us to build that relationship that lets us fight for them yeah you know, you can take it as this guy's not showing up and it's just another thing I got to do. Maybe I'm going to tell him to go, you know, work it out with his bail bondsman or whatever. Yeah. Or we can say, we're your attorneys for this case. We're getting you back in court. I'm going to call your mom if you want me to. And we're going to talk about transportation. Like it's basic golden rule stuff. Mm -hmm. We need to do that in order to represent folks who haven't chosen us. They haven't chosen us and they're also coming into it with the perceptions that we are not on their side or that we're public pretenders and that we are either less qualified or that we are overworked or that we are not loyal to them. Um, And in turn, we're in cahoots with the courts and the DAs and 
we have to go above and beyond, as you just mentioned, to overcome that trust deficit and to show the client that we are wholly there for them and them alone, that we have their back. Our loyalties are for them and no one else in the, in that context. As we kind of zoom back out in terms of how the, the genesis of Mr. Williams speaking up during his sentencing hearing and then ultimately being duct taped by deputies, I think that's you know what comes to mind for me is how do I, as a defense attorney, how do I prevent that from ever remotely occurring in, in one of my cases? Um, that's what came to mind for me, mm-hmm. uh, more than attributing anything to the judge, because I think it's pretty clear that the judge was abrasive and that he was obnoxious. I think and any, not judicial and not, not judicial. I think most people see that. But I think what's overlooked and I think what's powerful about this conversation that we have is the insight from a defense attorney's perspective and how we can challenge ourselves to do and be better. I was thinking to myself, and we might be saying to ourselves, I don't have time in the courtroom to look at my client in the eye and to have the types of conversations that you're describing. But that's where we ultimately have to, one, we just have to do it. But then two, we have to demand of the courts and the and the systems to allow us those moments. Uh, you know, Meaning we have to say, if a judge is pressuring us to move a case along in court, and, and we have to say, judge, time out. I need more time with Mr. Jones. I need more time with Mr. Williams before I'm ready to go on the record on his behalf. And if the judge wants to you know, push back against that, then that's a, a systems issue that we're going to have to deal with with our administrators and with the courts and things like that. I mean, the things that we're talking about are not primarily resource solutions. We're not talking about expert witnesses that are required for cases. We're not talking about... Uh, taking more cases to trial or taking every case to trial. What we're talking about is remembering why we're here and remembering what our clients are going through as they get put through this conviction on machine. Yeah, this gauntlet. Right? That's the the thing that we're actually calling for right now in this conversation, I think, is whenever I have to represent a group of people, like if I'm going to represent everyone who's appearing in front of the judge on a day, like an arraignment calendar uh, yeah. or, or um, plea calendar or something like that. Yeah, I used to, you know, go there, like try to figure out how many people were I was going to be helping, figure out where they were, figure out what numbers they had, see what kind of paperwork I have for each case, if it's police reports or uh, reports about whether they should be released or not. And and I, it's just like a lot of shuffling and mm-hmm. organizing and thinking, like, what am, what am I going to be doing today? What's my approach going to be? As I've been trying to rethink my practice, I started doing this thing where I, I give a speech now. Yeah. And the speech is basically the trust deficit speech. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, you don't know who I am. You did not choose me. I understand that. You have all been in jail for some period of time, and I'm here to help you. And I'm going to be asking you a bunch of personal questions, and you're going to be like, who is this guy, and why is he asking me about... Uh, my medications right or about my family and whether my dad's okay with me coming home mm-hmm. right all this stuff that's really personal uh, and what what for right and i explain what we're going to be talking about and i'm having these conversations with the judge when we're calling the cases yeah there's nothing wrong with me telling the people i'm going to be trying to get you out of jail today right and here's how i'm going to do it right. i'm going to be asking about where you are from i'm going to be asking about how much money you have or wh- how much money you don't have, yeah. right? We're going to have that conversation. We're going to try to figure things out. And my goal is for you not to be in jail. 
That's my goal. Right. And that's truly my goal mm-hmm. is to not have you in jail. When I was doing misdemeanor practice, like you said, it's not a really about a, a resource issue that, you know, not, there's nothing about resources that stops us from maybe coming to court a little early mm-hmm. to have that talk or that speech. Because when yeah. I was doing mistos, you know, we had pretty hefty calendars, not, you know, 20, 20, 20 clients in the afternoon, something like that. Most of them hadn't met me yet. And so I come into the courtroom as an audience full of people. And I know that everyone's a little on pins and needles and anxious about who who the public defender is. When when are they going to talk to me? People have to get back to work. Uh, people have other things to do. It's a it's a one thirty court, but court runs till five. And so what I would try to do in those moments is get there a little early and then stand up before everybody and just say introduce myself to all of them and say, you know, that I'm Sajid Khan. I'm a, I'm with the public defender's office. I've been assigned to represent. I'd go down like a little roll call of who I'm assigned to represent. You know, and I'll be getting to you sometime between 1.30 and 5 o'clock today and I apologize that you know I may get to you later than you would have wanted but as you mentioned uh, as you just mentioned Avi that we're there for the on their behalf and we'll make sure that they're heard make sure that they're accounted for and that really set people at ease it was also a uh, it was a tactic to kind of uh, help my, make my job easier so I didn't have people constantly coming up to me during while I was trying to do work for other clients telling me hey when are you going to get to my case or hey or do you represent me so they know it from the outset and that's a critical point because what we're you know what we're recommending it's not like it's a cost it's right. not like it's something well now I'm going to do that and then it's going to be five minutes that I don't have to shuffle my papers around or right. that is time where you're setting expectations for people that Anybody would want. Right. I mean, this is the worst day of our clients, you know, month, right? When they have to come to court. It's like the DMV, yeah. except you could be convicted of a crime and put in jail. Like, you know, it's it's bureaucracy plus real danger. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that those speeches you're talking about or that we're both talking about are not just negatives. Right? Yeah. They're really productive. They're not burdensome. Yeah, I'll just tell you, I did one. I was been working on this speech, <laughs> and I haven't gone full. I haven't gone all totally hard on it yet. I've kind of done it kind of softly in different ways, and usually it's good. And you know, it's it's definitely a work in progress. But I did it uh, for a group of people, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, you know, uh, does anybody need an interpreter <laughs> after doing the speech? And I yeah. thought I nailed the speech. Right. I thought I really nailed the speech. Have I told you this? <laughs> no. So I thought I nailed the speech. And I said, does anybody need an interpreter? And some people raise their hand. I'm like, okay, we can get you interpreters. And then this, this person raises uh, a hand and says, I need an interpreter. I don't speak. Asshole. Oh, shit. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> and then the, the the crowd went wild. It was a perfectly timed uh, diss. Uh, and <laughs> oh, I kind of like scurried off and kind of licked rough. my wounds. It was, you know, it was a complicated story, but I right. actually thought it was, you know, Whatever led to that statement happening, I mean, part of it was the trust thing that I'm talking about. It's it can be a thankless speech sometimes, but it's yeah. still worth it. And yeah, that was still and it. that was still a great day in terms of building productive yeah. relationships. You know, when I saw Mr. Williams uh, speaking out before the judge and being gagged, it reminded me of a trial that I did here in this county. It was a client named Mr. Suarez, uh, who I love and I, I think of very fondly. He yelled out during jury selection in in a trial, jury trial we did, and he yelled at a juror. Um, It really flustered me. And so I had some empathy for the defense attorney in Mr. Williams' case. You know, maybe if he was going silent because he was flustered, it's not something that commonly happens where we have a client speaking up and not listening to instructions. It really flustered me when my client 
yelled out during jury selection. And ultimately, the judge in that case issued a mistrial, and we were able to start jury selection over again. But before the judge did so, he admonished Mr. Suarez and said, you know, if you have another outburst like the one that you had, we're going to try this case without you. Uh, We're going to put you in a different room, and you're going to have to watch it on video, which is what we talked about earlier. But beyond that, I took the moment to try to understand why my client had the outburst. So when I talked to him, he started to detail to me what he was feeling sitting there in a crowded courtroom alone with the exception of me by his side someone again he didn't choose me he knew me because we had visited each other you know i visited him at the jail and had represented him a few you know a few times in court he described to me the anxieties of you know being in a jury trial like so often you and i have talked about how there are so many things stacked up against our clients taking things to trial our clients don't want to be in trial many of them you know it's a very stressful anxiety causing experience to be the people versus john suarez you know like to have the government's weight coming down on you you have a prosecutor standing up and prosecuting you you have a judge bringing in jurors you know dozens and dozens of potential jurors to hear your case so mr suarez told me one it was really difficult for him to be in trial two he felt really embarrassed during jury selection because he had all these people that were really qualified you know they're talking about their jobs and what they do and here he was the criminally accused in this felony case he felt really embarrassed yeah he was in pain because the shoes that I had picked for him were not very comfortable and he had a medical issue with his legs that were that was really uncomfortable for him so every time that he stood up with me when the jury would come in and out of the courtroom uh, it was actually causing him a lot of physical discomfort on top of the anxiety he was experiencing standing in front of all these people he was tired because the jail was waking him up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, five o'clock in the morning to feed him and then ultimately get him to court by 830 and dressed out. They weren't giving him coffee, uh, which is something that he was accustomed to. He was an alcoholic when he was in the community. So he's going through withdrawals from not having access to alcohol. So all of those things combined into this very stressful powder keg that resulted in him yelling out in the jury trial process. So then when we started to take a collaborative approach on how to prevent this from happening again, I talked to the DA and the DA agreed with me that we wouldn't be standing up when the jury came in and out of the courtroom. So instead of all of us standing, which was kind of is kind of the normal course of uh, formality, the DA agreed that she'd sit down, I'd sit down and Mr. Suarez would sit down. The other thing is the deputies agreed that they would allow Mr. Suarez to have some coffee during trial. You, you know, it's a safety risk for them to give our clients hot coffee so they said okay we'll give him some lukewarm coffee that he can have with some sugar and cream and so mr suarez sipped the coffee and it kind of settled his nerves and settles his his anxieties in the jury selection process instead of pointing at mr suarez as i typically do with clients and kind of referencing him having the jurors attention kind of shown upon him i stopped that I focused more on the jury. I didn't really reference him by name because it was causing him anxiety and stress that we did so. And the judge was very kind to Mr. Suarez, talked to him on recesses, checked in on how he was doing to make sure that these blow-ups didn't happen again. We got through the trial. Mr. Suarez didn't yell out. He wrote me notes during the course of the trial. He'd whisper to me. Ultimately, that client luckily was acquitted of the felony he was accused of. He, he went down on a misdemeanor, lesser included offense. And ultimately, as the jury walked out of the room, he whispered to me and said, hey, can I tell the jury that I love them? And I said, sure. 
And so we stood up and he told uh, the jury that he loved them and he thanked them for their service. And it was a really sweet moment. So he went from yelling at the jury or prospective jurors to then telling them that he loved them. It, it kind of goes to show you when there's collaboration to try to um, assuage our clients' fears and there's a recognition of their humanity, it goes a long way. Some lessons for us as a system in terms of recognizing, again, our clients' humanity and ensuring that they don't have to be duct taped you know, when they just want to be heard. Oh, yeah. These things, they actually play out. The, the conversation, the abstract conversation that we're having plays out in real ways. There's this guy and he's verbally jousting with the judge and look what happens. Yeah. Right, but it's it's so much more complicated than that. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to Eight or a Better. We will talk to you next time. 